You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose concludes his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Stay tuned to hear part five of the conversation in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Monroe County Commissioners approved funding for converting paper records to a digital platform. But first, your local headlines. On March 9th at the Monroe County Commissioners meeting, recorder Eric Schmitz presented an agreement for renewal with Computer Systems Incorporated. And the other one here is for, okay, this one's kind of interesting. We accept electronic recordings and with the passage of Bill uh, 357, all counties uh, by 2024 will be required to accept any document electronically that is suitable for recording. Um, and that means, you know, assessors and auditors got on board with it and said, yeah, let's do this. Let's get it done everywhere so that it'll be universally offered in Indiana. Um, what this means for us, we already accept all documents that require going through all three offices. So anything that can be recorded at all can be submitted electronically. Um, but we have right now we have two companies that we work with to provide e-recording services and only one of those can transfer deeds uh, can can electronically accept deeds uh, because each one has its own system and i just didn't want to ask the assessors and auditors to learn two systems or three or four systems as we go forward and add other providers as they become certified. So what our software vendor CSI has done is to, um, they have written a, what's called a router, a document router that takes an electronic document, brings it into the recorder's office. We look at it, it gets moved on, on our server, moved on to the assessors, and then moved up to the auditor, and then it comes back down to us. It's one system that will accept all, any certified e-recording service provider so that everybody only has to know one system. And I gotta tell you, I've seen the demos three or four times now of the new system, and it looks great. And this is uh, no cost to us. The commissioners approved the perpetuation of funding. Schmitz also asked the commissioners to approve a contract with U.S. Imaging Incorporated, which will help with the digitization of all of their records. This involves U.S. Imaging sends a crew, and they are here 
scanning on site. They don't take any of our documents outside the office. Okay, they stay all right here because they have to be accessible. And they'll spend about three weeks scanning all of these. And then they take it off and they start working on putting it into a format, putting the, these scanned images in together into a format where they're actual documents like multi-page documents that can be imported into our system. So that's what we've got going on here. Right. Looking forward to it. Commissioner Penny Githens asked if this work digitizing the records would make the documents searchable with character recognition. Schmitz said that it would. The commissioners also approved an ordinance presented by Highway Director Lisa Ridge to make a no trucks location between West Leonard Springs Road and May Road to keep the traffic contained to the highway. The next commissioner's meeting will be held on March 16th. At the Monroe County Council meeting on March 8th, Auditor Catherine Smith gave an update on annexation results. Um, I just want to touch base with you and see if you guys had any questions about annexation. Uh, as you know, five of the seven areas uh, passed muster on the um, number of people who uh, petitioned against it. Can you hear me now? I talk so loud, I'm always afraid I'm going to blow your ears out. Um, so anyway, so five of the seven areas passed on um, the number of people who petitioned. Six had to be exceeded, had to exceed 65%. Uh, two areas, 1A and 1B, fell between uh, the 51 and the 65%. So that determination is yet to be made. And I know there are people who are working on uh, possibly filing um, to uh, block the annexation through a court process. That has not happened yet. The number of days still available to do that is still in the, um, and that's 15 working days, um, still in the, uh, in the period of time that they can, they can do that. But there was two ways, and I've been asked about uh, annex, about uh, assess values. So we looked at uh, the number of people first, and then if it would not have, um, the five areas would not have uh, had enough, we would have looked at AV, uh, but they, um, they did, so we didn't have to look at the AV because it's either or. In 1A and 1B, um, it, it, it did not exceed 65% on AV or um, or on the number of people. So I kind of want to clarify that in your, um, if you had any questions about that um, and just really ask you, is there any, is there anything you want to ask me? Council member Marty Hawk said that the process of remonstration has brought community members in the county together. Um, first of all, uh, congratulations to all the people who really went out there, went door to door and just work so hard for their neighborhoods. And um, so, I mean, I'm just grateful to see that kind of interaction here and, and uh, people meeting new neighbors that uh, that was, if nothing else comes of this, that was a really great thing to see people working together. Council member Jennifer Crossley asked about if the individuals in areas 1A and 1B would have to pay to file themselves. Smith said that they would. Highway Director Lisa Ridge gave an update on road work being done and requested approval of funds to be transferred to finish construction. Councilmember Hawk commented that the roads on some streets have so many potholes that people have been damaging their vehicles. 
Rich explained why the potholes are such a prevalent issue right now and how they've been filling them in given the weather constraints. Actually, the plant had actually opened up. What we, what we use in the winter is called a cold mix, and it definitely does not hold like a hot mix. But that is all that is available um, in the winter months for the potholes and when we get into spring. The worst thing that happens is when we get the rains and then like this weekend, we're going to be down to 10 degrees and we get that freeze. And that's what we call a freeze thaw time. And that is what's creating those potholes. Um, uh, last week, the plant did open. They had a big paving project for another company, but they allowed us to come in for three days and uh, get hot mix. And so we used four crews a day everywhere we could to try and catch up with some of the major potholes. But it's just that freeze and thaw period right now that that creates those. So um, hopefully within the next month, we'll be back to hot mix and and can um, do the best that we can with those right now with the cold mix. The next county council meeting will be held on April 12th. At the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting, Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development John Zoti asked the board to approve an increase in funding for a rehabilitation project for a home on East Hunter Avenue. He said that they discovered foundation damage while they were renovating and it exceeds the amount of money that was initially set. John Zoti with the hand department. So as the commissioners know, uh, periodically we've come to you um, to ask for an increase in funding for uh, rehabilitation projects for homes. Uh, the most recent ones were two mobile home projects in December where we were installing uh, HVAC units and the prices of those were higher than it originally came back. Our administrative manual, um, our, our programs and procedures document um, has a guideline in place that if there is a need for additional funds, we would come to the Redevelopment Commission. Um, and there is a cap. So we have been working with a homeowner now um, to rehabilitate various aspects of his home. And it, it turns out this project, um, there are foundational, or there's the issues with the foundation. There's keep sort of keep finding things, uh, if you will. And so we are uh, requesting your approval to um, go above the $38,500 um, cap. Uh, threshold uh, and do an amount not to exceed $5,000. We have a current estimate of $2,487.27, but um, in case there are any other changes, we won't have to come back with another request. We think $5,000 is a reasonable amount to uh, proceed with that. So, A commission member asked about the price of the foundation as she was concerned it could be more than $5,000. Program Manager for HAND, H-A-N-D, Cody Toothman, responded to the concern about the amount of the additional fees. At least part of the work that's being done with the foundation was, I believe it was $2,800, because when we were repairing one of the basement walls, we found out there was no footer underneath, mm -hmm. uh, which for that to be structurally secure, it does need that footer to be poured first. Uh, and then I believe there was also some concerns in getting the front stoop area up to code, which would result in, uh, from the way it was constructed, uh, would have to also, I believe, be replaced, which was $1,200.
uh, I know John could speak a little bit more to the way that was structured, but part of it had to do with uh, also tearing up a portion of the sidewalk as well. So uh, those two items alone were about four thousand uh, dollars, if I recall correctly. The commissioners approved the additional funding unanimously. Next, Director of Economic and Sustainability Development, Alex Crowley, presented an agreement for a sustainability consultant for the legacy IU Health Hospital site. So, uh, you know, as we're getting ready to um, uh, prepare for the disposition of parcels for the Hopewell development, you know, the hospital site, um, we, we have uh, recognized and the mayor has, has uh, been focused on and also, the, you know, the whole master planning process was um, highlighting the opportunity that exists to really uh, increase the sustainability and the sustainable development within the property um, and, and really, you know, make it uh, hopefully something that, that stands out in the community. So we uh, have uh, looked around at different opportunities and, and decided that one way to advance um, really the objective that, that the master plan and all of us are here is to to have a uh, third party, in this case, Guide Done, come and really help us in a couple of different respects to prepare for the disposition of the property. So the first is to do some advanced due diligence work, uh, due diligence work in terms of understanding how other communities have, um, you know, sort of entered this phase and really led up to a successful sustainable development outcome. Um, the second is to, um, help us through a workshop really educate the team on a couple of uh, important aspects that due diligence work, but also the financial impacts of um, different scenarios having to do with sustainable, sustainable development. So to, to help us understand some of the you know, financial implications of the kinds of outcomes that we're seeking. The board approved the resolution unanimously. The next Redevelopment Commission meeting will be held on March 21st. At the Utilities Service Board meeting on March 10th, Director of Utilities Vic Kelson gave an explanation of how the meeting is currently set up now that they are back in person. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to share with everyone that this is not a hybrid meeting. This is an in-person meeting, but we've set up a Zoom feed because the room limit is 15 people. So with a 15-person limit, we can't have a bunch of staff in here. We can't have a bunch of visitors. And if the public comes in to speak, uh, right now we have 14 people in the room. So if two people come in, somebody will have to leave. <laughs> um, presumably one of us over here uh, will have to step outside. So um, we're going to maintain the room limit, and st uh, CBU staff can join the meeting uh, externally by Zoom. I have a speaker here on my computer, so if we are in a situation where there's a staff member speaking from outside, I'll turn my speaker on so you can hear it in the room. So we do have the equipment on order to convert the room to be suitable for hybrid meetings, but there's one of the uh, critical components is uh, experiencing shipping delays. The last I heard, it would be here mid-April, so we're going to be doing it this week for probably a couple of months. and. Uh, 
uh, it's worked out fairly well, but uh, I'll make sure we have an external speaker next time. So this is not a hybrid meeting. If the public wants to attend, they have to attend in person. Director of Operations Tom Axum asked the board to approve an agreement with Pontomac Service. I'd like to ask for your approval for a contract with Potomac Electrical Services. Uh, this is for work at the Blucher Pool Plant. It's, uh, they're going to be doing cleaning and testing on a 480-volt uh, switchgear and recondition a circuit breaker. They're also going to provide uh, two backup generators so we can keep the plant in power while they're doing their work. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Kelson also brought up in new business a memorandum of understanding with Monroe County to share the cost of a feasibility study. What we've been talking about, you, you know we've spoken a number of times about the potential for a waste-to-energy project where we would uh, take uh, wastewater sludge and other solid waste streams that are organic and compostable uh, there's been a study done by the Solid Waste Management District and a similar discussion of, among city uh, sanitation that about 40% of the solid waste stream uh, in Monroe County is compostable. It could be digested uh, to make gas. We also, as you know, uh, handle oil and grease uh, at the Dillman plant, but we do not allow oil and grease from outside Monroe County uh, to come in because we really don't treat it. it it's in a lagoon there. Um, so. Uh, this is something we looked at a couple of years ago. We did a, an internal study looking at how much gas we could make with the waste streams that we know that we have, and including uh, uh, food waste from IU and IU Health, the new hospital, and so forth. Um, and because of the size of the digester we need to handle all the sludge from Dillman, it just didn't make sense to build something there. Uh, the other thing is that at the Dillman plant, uh, we don't have what's called primary sludge. That's the stuff that just falls out when you bring the water uh, to the wastewater plant. Uh, Dillman goes straight into aeration, so it doesn't have two stages of treatment. The Blucher Pool Plant, however, does have primary so solids, the high-energy solids, and uh, but that plant is probably too small to, to justify an anaerobic digester all by itself. The question that uh, we're looking at, though, is to consider this as more of a, uh, not a wastewater sludge problem, but a solid waste problem. He said the study would cost about $129,000 and would be evenly split between Monroe County and the city of Bloomington. Kelson said the Solid Waste Management District Board will still be discussing the study at their meeting in April. The next Utility Service Board meeting will be held on March 28th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose of the Eco Media Center of Monroe County concludes his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Rose asks our guests about a range of issues, mainly focusing on affordable housing. Stay tuned to hear part five of this series on the WFHB Local News. conversation begins with the host asking Hamilton about how her personal background informed her views on housing and urban development. Well, um, maybe uh, we could sort of wrap up with you actually telling a little bit more about yourself. You said you're working in the Virginia area. 
maybe where you grew up? Did you come up in an urban situation? And are you in a more dense city now? I, I think I saw that you've worked in Baltimore at a point. Maybe you want to say where you're from and the trajectory of your life as, as far as, you know, intersecting with these issues. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Grand Junction, Colorado, which is a relatively small town in western Colorado. Definitely not a big city. I then went to college in Baltimore and then ended up in Washington, D.C. after that. I live in D.C. now and work in Arlington, Virginia, which are both quite urban, walkable places. The way I got interested in this issue was actually in Grand Junction, Colorado, where I interned in the city planning department for a few summers when I was off from college. And just through that experience, became aware of all of the barriers that exist to building more walkable and lower cost housing all across the country. So while I didn't grow up in a particularly urban place, I learned to understand some of the rules that are blocking that more traditional urban type of development. And maybe one other thing on one of these sort of uh, in-between models that I've heard about laws. You mentioned D.C. I think it might have started in D.C. in the 80s. Some law that would give renters the right of, in a way, veto or at least some say in who if their landlord property owner is going to sell, who they can sell it to. Are you aware of any of those laws that are kind of bubbling up? DC has a program that requires tenants to have the option of purchasing a building when a landlord is going to sell it. I would say that these rules that are intended to be tenant protections have Benefits and downsides for tenants themselves, because in D.C., for example, that can be a big barrier to landlords, because when they do want to sell their building, it can be a very long and difficult process for them, which in turn is a disincentive to build rental housing by making it worse investment. We see that tenants often have the worst situations in some of the regions that have the most tenant protections. New York City, for example, is a really, really difficult place to be a renter looking for housing, in part because it's really, really difficult to evict tenants in New York City. So landlords want to be extremely careful about being sure that the person they're renting to is going to have no problem at all affording the housing that they're renting them. You know, like many things that we've, we've talked about today, there are benefits and costs to these policies that are intended to help tenants. And uh, I guess that's one of the only contexts I've heard about things like rent control. I'm wondering if there are any other mechanisms to keep prices low and whether those would have any downsides and whether there are entities aside from HUD, you know, projects and things that sort of acquire and build housing for the sake of housing people, not so much a profit incentive. My preferred policy for improving access to housing on the subsidy side is something like HUD's uh, current voucher system, 
but expanded to more people on the basis of income eligibility. Relative to something like public housing, that program gives the beneficiaries more freedom in where they want to live, what type of unit they want to live in. I'd actually like to see HUD experiment with a cash system rather than housing vouchers, just direct income supports. I think most attorneys would say that that would require Congress to to change the, the program, not something that HUD can do. Just because someone has a Section 8 voucher doesn't mean it's going to be accepted anywhere. So a lot of people presume that because people have that, that they can find housing. And there's actually a whole lot of discrimination about that. And you even see it on certain realty sites and things do not take Section 8, you know, and it would simply be them just kind of registering and, you know, have to go through an inspection. So to kind of have that in there, that's something that's not currently illegal. Would that have to be, I guess, a a federal level or through some mechanism of if you don't do this, we'll hold back these block grants or something like that? Potentially, yeah. There are some states or localities that prevent what's called source of income discrimination. Well, that'll do it, I suppose. So thank you, Emily. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The local news is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. 
You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 